actually uh, gave a similar talk on five cities that bring people into counseling at our uh, Free Methodist University in Greenville, Illinois last spring. So, um, yeah, this isn't my first time to go through this material, but I'm trying to condense it so you kind of get an idea of what, what is an issue that is of the severity to actually go to a counselor, make an appointment, pay some money, which none of us want to do, right? We don't want to take the time in our lives or go to that hassle. But there are five biggies that are essential for uh, healing. And the reason that we pay attention to this at this church is we believe in God's holistic healing, meaning he, he heals us, mind, body, soul, spirit. Our psychological health is just as important to him as our physical health. And a lot of us will ask for prayer for our physical health when we might be struggling in some of these more private areas. And it may not be appropriate to say them out loud, but I hope that if you know someone who is going through some of these or you yourself are going through some of these that you will encourage them to get some good counseling all right you're ready to begin with the five biggies are you all uh laying bets on what those might be <laughs> are you saving your gambling for the super bowl <laughs> you can tell i'm not the pastor <laughs> okay your readings First technical difficulty, I cannot get the pen top of that. Are you going to try another color of boats? You got it? Yeah. Oh, good. Strong hand. But it doesn't look like the best thing. I'm so happy this. Okay, number one. What do you think it's going to be? Depression. Anxiety. Abuse. Abuse. And in this umbrella, we're going to also talk about post-traumatic stress. Uh, two years ago, our community went through the tragedy of the fires and the mudslides and the loss of life and the loss of property. Those are huge losses. Those took a lot of people into counseling. It was important for children in the schools affected in the Montecito area to have counselors um, who were accessible to the kids. These are issues that you just don't talk yourself out of. These are issues that it's so helpful to go in to a counseling session. But you know, when we talk about abuse, a lot of times the only ways we think about abuse is sexual abuse. And that's certainly in the news now. Uh, the Harvey Weinstein case, uh, the Jeff Epstein, I mean, um, yeah, everywhere we turn around, people saying outrageous things from the highest positions that are totally indefensible because they're abusive. But sexual abuse is not the only kind of abuse. And what I'm going to pass out to you today is a handout just to give you an idea of what other kinds of abuse. I made 30, I think, so I think we're good. And um, unfortunately, our copier kind of chopped off some words on the side, but I'll fill in the blank for you. When um, when people come into counseling, sometimes they'll tell me, well, he's never hit me, so I'm not abused. And then I pull out this chart. And this chart has been widely used. It was first used in the Minnesota Department of Social Services. And if you will look at the varieties of abuse side, 
before you turn it over. So you should be looking at varieties of abuse on the top of your page. And you read it around like a clock. I mean, abuse can be emotional. It could be making threats against you. It can be economic or intimidation, property violence, throwing things, hitting things, holes in the walls, the silent treatment. Um, yeah, that can go on for a long time, and everybody in the household is very aware that something's going on. Isolating you. So if you have a friend who is being isolated by a person in their life, that's a sign of abuse. The use of children, sending a child to give a message to a, a divorced uh, ex uh, is abusive to the child. So... Um, Humiliating someone in public or privately. Responsibility abuse. I think this one's really interesting that um, one person sort of abdicates all the responsibility in the household to the other. So they get to pay the bills. They get to worry about whether they have enough money at the end of the month. They get to do all the cooking, all the household. Yeah, that's abusive. It should be shared. If you got two adults in the household, it should be shared. Spiritual abuse, and unfortunately, in the church, we hear some of this spiritually abusive language of, um, you know, the hierarchy talk. The well, man is the head of the castle. You do what I say. It's God in charge. Sent his son. Put the man in charge of the wife, who's in charge of the kids, who can be in charge of the dog, or you know, this uh, whatever. Uh, not not scripturally accurate. It's a twisted reading of scripture that there would be that kind of a hierarchical power um, set up. And it certainly wasn't God's first intention in the Garden of Eden. He made them male and female. He gave them both jobs to care for the garden. It was the fall that brought in all this, um, yeah, messed up stuff. But spiritual abuse is a big one. Sexual abuse, use of male privilege, physical abuse, of course, we usually think of that one. Power differentials, stalking. This can happen if you have a high school age daughter and a boyfriend is not letting her go after she's trying to break up and making threats. You may have a roommate if you're um, living in a dorm or with a single roommate. And if you really look at these varieties of abuse, you can see that there's a lot here that people when you're in the situation, you can dismiss it because it doesn't look like one certain way. Any questions on that wheel? This is just the eye opener that I give people. So flip it over and it's going to say healthy relationship wheel at the top. And you know, some people have grown up in an abusive household and maybe their dad treated their mom abusively and they never saw a good model of any other way to be. So what kind of a marriage do you think they're going to establish when they start? If this is all they've ever seen and they don't learn something new, well, chances are they will probably perpetrate what they saw perpetrated as they were growing up. So instead we talk about, so what does a healthy relationship look like? And there's appropriate touching, there's proper bonding, there's cooperation and economically respect of each other's property, appropriate social behaviors, not flirting with their best friend. You know, some of this stuff that people excuse has to be called out as not a healthy relationship. Appropriate individuality, 
respectful requests of each other, rearing emotionally healthy children. One of the most um, emotionally helpful things a mom and dad can do raising kids is to show and tell the kids, not only say it, but by their behavior, how much they love each other and that they are the priority, not the children. It is too much emotional pressure on any child to be put at the top of the heap in the family. And if you've ever dealt with a kid who's had that, it does not go well. And it does not teach them how to have a good, healthy relationship in their own life as an adult. Um, appropriate communication. A lot of counseling, especially for couples, is about having appropriate, healthy, effective communication. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Equitable responsibilities, a healthy sexual relationship, and healthy spiritual development um, as both children of God. And we go directly to God in prayer. We, as Protestants, we don't even go through a priest to get to God. So we certainly don't go through a husband or a father or an elder brother. That's a, that's a whole other cultural system. It's not Christian. Any questions on abusive and healthy. So that's one thing we talk about when we talk about abuse. Um, probably the most uh, dangerous situation when it comes to abuse is when a wife is threatened physically, sexually, however, and children are involved in the house. And so a counselor who is dealing with a person who comes in about that is going to help them create a safe plan, a way to get out safely with her and her children because it's usually, uh, percentage-wise, more likely to be a woman who's being abused than a man. And there are safe shelters in town. So Shelter Services has um, safe houses that moms and kids can stay in. And those addresses and phone numbers are not published for obvious reasons because the perpetrator would sometimes come there. You know, the most dangerous situations for police to go into are domestic violence um, situations because the threat of harm is so great and emotions are running so high. So get the person safe. And probably if the husband or the perpetrator knows where you live, don't bring them to your house. Help them get to a safe house because it's not going to help if you also get hurt. That makes sense. One resource that's excellent in this whole area of abuse is there's a book by Dr. Dan Allender called The Wounded Heart. And he talks about healing from a spiritual perspective. He's a Christian author. He's come up and spoken at Westmont before. The Wounded Heart addresses the healing of the person who has been abused. So this is a really good resource for you to know. All right, ready for the second biggie? All right, second biggie. Addiction. And I did hear somebody say this first time, but this is not in the order of how they come in. I just, these are just the five big issues. So along with addiction, there's another side of the coin for addiction. Anybody know what it is? Codependency. All right. So, 
In a nutshell, for addiction, the best treatment is 12-step programs. The, statistically, the research shows that they have the best rate of success. Getting into a 12-step program, alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, getting a sponsor, working the program, going to meetings. It takes a while to rewire the addicted brain and it takes a lot of support to do it. So that is just by far and away the best treatment for addiction. Codependency is the family members or the people in that person's life who are affected by the addiction. And there can be a variety of ways they're affected. But there's help for the codependence as well. Uh, basically, in, in a nutshell, a description of codependency is the people who make the addict's life work in an unhealthy way. Okay, so it's not good for the addict to be codependent, but it's also really not good for the codependent to be codependent. Uh, a lot of the work that goes into helping a codependent out of that place is counseling regarding boundaries, healthy and safe boundaries to have, good self-care, learning to have the support that they need to be able to stand up to the addiction. The best, again, in terms of support is Codependence Anonymous, and they're, they're called Al-Anon, or there are different groups around town, and what I usually encourage people is try them because not every group is the same. And there's at least, oh, there's so many. They're around the clock. Every day of the week, people can find meetings. And if they just try one meeting and say, oh, I couldn't relate to those people, usually another group will be a good fit. So again, don't let people give up. Let them get the help they need. I have another uh, handout for you on another effect of addiction. And this isn't so commonly thought of as being a big need to come in to counseling, but what it is is children of alcoholics. If you grew up in a home with an addict, there are some pretty um, easy to identify and predictable, I've got plenty here, um, predictable things that happen when you are raised by addicts or alcoholics. And these are good topics to go to counseling about and get some healing for yourself. And just off the top of your head, you can see, you can take all this stuff home and, and read it more in depth. But you can see that control is a big issue. Anytime we see somebody who's tightly controlled and has to control everything in their lives, that's usually about fear. So counselors try to unpackage, so what's the fear about? What are they afraid of? And a lot of this comes from fear of loss of control. Um, these, are, these are typical things that happen in an addictive family. Uh, second core issue is trust and an inability to trust or a difficulty trusting. Avoiding feelings, because they weren't allowed to have a whole lot of feelings. The addict or the alcoholic got to take all the airspace in the house, and so there wasn't a lot of room for their needs or feelings to be attended to. And then you see on the other side of that sheet, a tendency to be overly responsible, try to keep everything going. And then the fifth is an, a tendency to ignore their own needs. 
You know how some medical dramas on TV have kind of dark humor? The surgeons are kind of joking as they're, you know, they got their hands in somebody's innards and, you know, they're making all these inappropriate comments. So I used to work at a, uh, at a counseling agency and our, our mantra was when we had a new position on staff to hire, it was, well, only codependents need apply. Um, and look at the reasons why, you know, they're overly responsible, so they're going to work their fingers to the bone, and they tend to ignore their own needs. They're never going to take vacation. So, I mean, yeah. So you may be a super good employee. A lot of people who are natural helpers and a lot of people who are Christians can easily fall into codependency because these people love to take advantage of those kinds of people, right? So this is a good issue for counseling. A good resource is uh, if you uh, want to read a book uh, further about core issues for children of alcoholics and how to deal with them, an excellent resource is by Herb Grabitz, who's a Jewish psychologist, and Julie Bowden, who's a marriage and family therapist and unfortunately probably new age, but their book is solid. They wrote this based on their experience at the UCSB Counseling Center like 30, 40 years ago. And uh, our counseling ministries have given away books of this by the case because it's so solid. It's called Recovery Guide. So I'm sure you can find it on Amazon. Recovery Guide for Adult Children of Alcoholics, Herb Gravitz and Julie Bowden. And then if you'd like a Christian perspective, a really good book is Boundaries by Henry Cloud and John Townsend. Um, they're both Christian psychologists, and they've done several Boundaries books, Boundaries with Kids, bound, yeah, they've got Boundaries, Boundaries in Marriage, I think. They came up with quite a few iterations of the Boundaries topic. Yes, Nikki. So it says core issues for children of alcoholics. So I could maybe see someone kind of reading this and being like, oh, my, you know, neither of my parents were alcoholics, and yet people still end up being codependent. So what would be like a general term? Is there a general term? There, like it's certainly addictive behavior, and they may not be addicted to alcohol, or they could be dry drunks. I'm, there are sober drunks who yeah. still perpetrate the same behaviors. But workaholism, um, gambling, addiction, pornography, there's so many forms that addiction takes its place. So alcoholics is kind of the generic term. Yeah. yeah. Children of trauma. That's another good, um, a traumatic upbringing, I would say, more than a specific like the mudslide. It's, it's over their whole childhood. Yeah. Um, the Boundaries is by Cloud and Townsend, is the Christian one, and Recovery Guide is the one by Gravitz and Bowden. But the dry drunk doesn't, you, there's nothing you can see as an excuse for their behavior. Right. And you don't even realize. Right, right. So this is somebody who has, who has been an alcoholic, is a recovering alcoholic? Could be. But they're not continuing to work the program. If, you, if um, a person goes through the 12-step or recovery or detox, let's say they go into one of these three-month detox places and they come out and they're not drinking anymore, but they're still doing the outrageous behavior, it's, um, yeah, it can still be, it's still alcoholic behavior. Okay? Number three, I'm going to put up. And I think I heard somebody call this one out too. Anger, 
And um, along with this also goes domestic violence and some of the things we sort of talked about in the first category. This is a tough one to deal with. Um, conflict resolution is a skill that every person should have. It's too bad it's not in the high school curriculum. Communication and conflict resolution. I mean, it just should be in everybody's repertoire. And a lot of us grew up in homes where either good communication was not happening or conflicts never got resolved in a healthy way. So we could take, if we had a whole afternoon here, uh, we could take some time and talk about how anger and conflict was dealt with in our homes. In my home, you weren't supposed to get mad. We were Christians, and you weren't supposed to get mad. So where do you think that anger went? Huh? Inside, went underground. So, yeah, yeah. And so, because of that, since I didn't see good role models of people working out their conflict, or having conflict in an appropriate way and working through it, do you think I came into a marriage at the age of 19 with good skills for conflict resolution? <laughs> Not so much. We fought, like, we fought for probably the first, what, at least two years, maybe three, of our marriage. It's amazing we're still married, but we were not gonna let our parents say, I told you you shouldn't get married so young. So part of it was our stubbornness, but um, yeah, we had to do a lot of growing up and a lot of learning of healthy, appropriate behavior. A great resource for conflict resolution for Christians from a Christian source is David Augsburger's book, Caring Enough to Confront. Now this came out long time ago but the title says it all you have to care enough about the relationship to do the hard work of communicating and resolving conflict and doing it in an appropriate way so this is a lot of what marriage and family therapists do at least what I did as as um, I when I saw couples usually couples come in mad what are they mad about well what are the three top things couples fight about? Money, sex, children. Okay, that's usually what the mad is all about. And they're yelling at each other. And so a lot of it is teaching people how to speak respectfully to each other, how to communicate what they need to communicate in respectful ways, and deal with the hard issues of working through conflict in an appropriate way that's not destructive to the other person or to themselves. So taking the destructiveness out of it is the key to effective conflict resolution. And there are many um, good ways to work through that. Denny and I teach this when we teach our healthy church leaders training class every year or our peer counseling training class, which I see a lot of graduates sitting among us here. Um, so important to learn how to deal effectively with conflict resolution. And, well, since the high schools don't teach it, maybe we should just continue to teach it at all the churches. Probably that and learning how to do taxes. Wouldn't that be a good class in high school? Probably also needed. So, what's that? Money management. Money management, yeah, absolutely. Everybody's in debt, and that'd be a great, solid class to have. So, anger and conflict resolution. When you go to a therapist, they're usually going to have a, some kind of a specialty. And some therapists don't 
prefer working with couples because there's a lot of yelling and anger. Um, I actually, that was my favorite because I wasn't afraid of yelling and anger because I'd been there, right? So as long as they weren't going to be violent with each other, I was, I was fine with it. Um, because I knew that there was real potential. Since I'd lived through it and God had brought hope and healing into my life, then I knew he could do it for others as well. That's another key thing to look for in looking for a therapist is have they been through a similar thing to what I'm dealing with? So will they be able to bring personal experience to bear on this? Mm -hmm. Because if it's all theory, what they learned in a classroom probably will not be as effective. Okay, let's look at number four. Um, I'm going to put a key word up here, and it's adultery. But that's just... This is my technique for remembering how to give a talk without reading notes. Is I got all A's. Have you figured out my pattern yet? Yeah. Okay, so sex issues, um, whether it's addiction, whether it's betrayal of a marriage, um, I have to tell you how important it is to see a Christian therapist. The worldview they come, the perspective they come with, um, the reliance on prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit to heal. This is a whole other layer of healing that can come when a Christian is doing the therapy and you have invited them into your brain and into your emotions and into your relationships to tinker around. Um, I will never forget a couple I saw down in that little building and it came out that their youngest child was actually fathered by the wife's boss at work. And there had been an affair going on for quite a while. And it had been discovered, um, not immediately, but it came out. And if I had just been working on my own wisdom, my own figuring out of how things should work, I would have thought, well, this is a betrayal too big. They should probably separate and, you know, try to figure out co-parenting the older three kids and that kind of thing. But, of course, I didn't say that because I was praying with them and, and working with them through all the different ins and outs of their relationship. And God did a miracle of healing. He gave this man forgiveness for his wife and love for his wife at a level that he not only forgave and accepted her, but, but accepted this little girl, this daughter, um, that was clearly not his, as one of his own. And it was a miracle of God's grace. And to, to see that firsthand, you are not left unchanged. You are aware then of the power of God if, as never before. I would say for the most part, a secular counselor dealing with a very problematic marriage situation, what I've heard them say is you have grown apart and you are different people and you need to pursue your own happiness. And that's kind of where it goes. They, they focus on what's best for the individual and just kind of figure out the rest. Uh, I've seen that God can do a whole lot more, and I could never go back to working in a secular agency that doesn't allow prayer or talking about the spiritual side 
of what's going on with each of these problems. And that's just the best example I can give you. Let me give you a resource for this. Um, you know, all the communication resources that are out, the best ones, um, I would say Virginia Satir, who did people making and uh, a lot of the early family systems theory, although she wasn't coming from a Christian place, she had solid communica communication training that she could do. And it always takes that with a couple. Um, Denny, can I use you as a volunteer? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I've been volunteering a lot. Good. And why don't you come too, Vince? Because yes. I'm not going to put a woman with him. So let me show you how I would work with a couple. And I don't care which one's the husband and which one's the wife, you can, whatever. <laughs> All right, so I wouldn't just sit there and listen to what they tell me. What I would do with them is I would put them face to face. I'd make them get a little closer so they could actually look into each other's eyeballs. I'm not going to make you both hands <laughs> since you're not really the Bible. Okay. I would put them, we call this knee to knee, face to face. If they're not ready to kill each other, I'd have them hold hands while they're talking, which sometimes breaks down barriers that have been there for a long time. And I would just guide you guys like a coach. And I explain to them, this is not rocket science. But you probably, or maybe, didn't learn these skills in your own home growing up, so here we go. And I would have them share a feeling. And so, I, whoever wants to start, I let them start. They share a feeling. I feel, the third word has to be a feeling, not I feel that you, <laughs> or I feel you never, which are judgments, right? So I would correct that kind of language and keep them with a feeling. And then I'd say, and Vince, what do you hear Denny say? And just make sure he actually hears it. Because sometimes when people get into really bad communication patterns, they're not even hearing what they said. This person might say, I feel hurt. And this one says, uh, this one says, well, I think they said they don't respect me. <laughs> we're going back. We're going to take it. We're going to strip it back down and just make sure you hear each other and then find out how that makes the other feel and just start from the beginning and help them to take one little thing at a time and then trade. Now you get to tell him how you feel. You know, you see what I'm saying? It's a very directive, coaching, skill building, educational process. And this is how both Danny and I have done. Uh, couples counseling, marriage counseling for years and years and years. Uh, different therapists work. Oh, I'm off mic. Am I supposed to be on mic? No, we can hear you. It's okay. Well, she's got a recorder going. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so um, if you go to a counselor and all they want to do is sit and listen to you talk and say, mm hmm, you know, I say, tell me more about that. Well, how do you think? You know, that's fine. That's called Rogerian. It's very accepting. Certainly better than being condemning and judgmental and all that stuff. I just don't feel it's enough for this kind of a issue that requires learning some new skills and working through a conflict. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. 
Thank you very much, volunteers. You guys are not a couple. You're not married. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that's some good ones, though. Just one second. Okay, Sarah? That would be true for all of the, the issues. All of the issues. That you want to you want end up being able to have tools. To there are different approaches, though, for different of these. Yeah. So, for instance, uh, PTSD is, is an example. It's like grief with a whole other layer on it. Mm -hmm. So, for grief, the way people heal from grief is talking through the situation. They may have to talk through it 20 times. They may have to talk through it 200 times. If you've ever sat with someone in an emergency or someone who's just lost their spouse, they may need to tell you the whole story from beginning to end. Well, John had some indigestion after dinner, and I didn't think there was anything wrong. And then he went out and sat, and, and then his arms started hurting, and his jaw started hurting. And then I called nine, you know, the whole thing. And that is the way people it's actually been shown that's how the brain heals itself, is walking through the whole story step by step. Now, mostly, people who have a good friend or a good family support system can do that for each other and hear those stories. And I'll come over, I'll make you a cup of tea, just, we'll just sit and talk. You don't have to, what scares people about people who've had a big loss or are grieving is, I don't know what I'm going to say. You know, because their husband died like really quickly with no warning, and I don't have a speech to give them. They don't want a speech. They won't even listen to your speech if you have one, and and you may just say the wrong thing. So it's just better to go and sit and listen. Let them tell their story as many times as they want to, um, over and over, and that's how healing comes. Now with PTSD, so that was a lot of what was happening after the mudslide people who were willing to sit and let the people talk about their whole experience. And we heard this crash and it sounded like a train coming down the mountain. And then, you know, let them do all of that because that's how it's healing. It's not our job to say, this is why it happened. Uh, where was God when, you know, those aren't the questions that are important at that point. They need to just talk through what happened. And if they survived it, God was certainly there. And if they didn't, we pray that they are with him in heaven. So, yes, Heidi. Do we, is there a way or do we ever indicate, um, I have a friend that's been processing her husband's death for a few years. Okay. And tells it, just like you said, from the very first, blew his nose twice or, uh -huh. or what. Oh, yeah, all do the we details. Do ever indicate that we've heard before or we just sit and listen each time okay yes. that's what I've been doing but I, I wasn't sure listening was... takes a great deal of energy patience to stay focused mm -hmm. yeah it's a ministry to listen well uh, they used to say a person losing their spouse would be over it in a year give them a year to grieve they're saying now for spouses about five years Whoa. And if you lose a child, that's a lifetime. That's a lifetime. So yeah, there's no deadline to put on it. And so be sure you have the time when you go to get together with his friend to actually sit and hear whatever it is she needs to talk about. Try to try to give a whole hour if you can. Oh yeah. But um, 
Now, let me just say the caveat to what I just said is there are some griefs that become complicated griefs. We call them complicated in a clinical way in that they turn into physical symptoms. They turn into some very unhealthy things. So if it goes on and on and on, let's say it's been five years, they're still acting. I remember Denny had a client who came in one day and talked about a grief as though it was fresh, like maybe the last week or month or something, it was 13 years previous. So if grief is still fresh after all those years, there's been no healing that's been going on, that requires a professional because it may have gone into some kind of obsession or compulsion or depression <coughs> or whatever. Make sense? Mm -hmm. so yeah, Alana. I've heard the same thing from many years, but my son has mental illness. Mm -hmm. So that's different. Do I still listen emphatically? It's exhausting, isn't it? <laughs> it's exhausting. As much as you can. And get another support group around him so that you have a break <coughs> from the constant rehearsing of the stories. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Tell me your name. I don't think I know you. I'm Danielle. Danielle. Very nice to meet you. Um, you know, they say the gift that cancer gives us is time, because usually there's lots of time to say goodbye, whereas a heart attack might happen, no notice, just gone, or a car accident or something like that. Um, yeah, the not being able to say goodbye or apologize for the last argument you had or kind of finish up, tie up all those loose ends. That's a really difficult thing to do. And there are different methods we do in therapy. We can have them write a letter to the person they've lost and, and express their feelings fully. And um, you know, there are different things that a therapist would help them do. The other side for PTSD, uh, some hypnotic techniques are helpful. EMDR is a, like a rapid eye movement thing that some therapists do. There's a tapping thing that some therapists do. All all are kind of, um, they're related to hypnotic uh, interventions. So you just want to trust the person that you're going to go to mess with you on a below conscious level. Yeah. Yes. What about someone that just can't get out of the pity pot? I mean, they feel so sorry for themselves. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know if you want someone sensitive, but it's like, yeah. what do you do with that? Yeah. I mean, without being judgmental or condemning you, you exercise good boundaries yeah. for your self-care. So you give them one hour, not three. Uh, well, you one give hour for 10 years. Possibly, if that's your commitment to yeah, that friend. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. You're, re you're referring them to a counselor. You know, self-pity is, um, I think it gets into a spiritual issue. So if there's... If there's Christian faith in the person, uh, it could be that they need pastoral spiritual care more than therapy care. So kind of know where the need is. Uh, 
a visual I like to use is an onion, and I'm going to put this down. Um, think about an onion. Each person is unique. We're all unique onions sitting here. We're, we have layers. So if we've got a problem and it's just kind of there on the surface, we can just deal with that outer, outer layer. But it may need to go a little more inward. So it could be that our friends can come alongside us on the outer layer of talking through life problems. It may get to be a little bit more inner. Maybe we need to go to our pastors. It may go even deeper. We need to go to a therapist. May to go. May need to go to a psychiatrist. You know, and get on medication. So you you start from the outside. You don't assume. Oh. Well, they're depressed, so they probably need to get on medication. Don't start there, but it may be that that's where it ends up. Does that make sense? Okay, next A. Let's go with anxiety. And I think I heard somebody say this one, too. In fact, I think I heard all of you say these at some point, because these are the biggies. The other side of the coin for anxiety is depression. They're not both operative in every situation, but often they are two sides to the coin. Depression was the number one mental health problem in America in the 70s and 80s. As we got towards 2000, anxiety took over. And since 2000, it's been anxiety. Um, there's lots to be anxious about. We live in a scary world, and we live in a world that is not safe, and we live with a lot of broken people, including ourselves. And so there's some reality to this, but there's also things that can help with it. So what, I'm gonna give you a very simple intervention for anxiety right now. Everybody put your two feet on the floor, plant them. Plant them on the floor, sit up straight, put your hands in your lap, and think about relaxing your shoulders, and we're gonna breathe. We're gonna breathe to the count of five in our nose. We're gonna hold it for five. We're gonna blow it out through our mouth to the count of five, and we're gonna hold for five. We're gonna do this about three times. Here we go. Hold, two, three, four, five. Blow it out your mouth, two, three, four, five, hold. You guys, I cannot even hear you. I don't think anybody in this room is breathing. Let's try again. <laughs> Through your nose. Two, three, four, five. Hold. Two, three, four, five. Blow it out your mouth. Oh, somebody's breathing. Good. Thank you, Na. And hold. Let's do it again. In through your nose, two, three, four, five, hold, two, three, four, five, blow it out, two, and hold. Um, this is something you can do even when you're driving. You can't shut your eyes. You have to keep your eyes open. But, <laughs> well, you can plant your feet, sort of. <laughs> um, this is something that will calm your inner physical being down. When our physical being calms down, that's related to our emotions and our spirit. So it can calm all of it. I remember doing this, driving myself over to Cottage for my radiation treatments when I had the skin cancer um, 
thing a few years ago. And you're anxious when you're going for radiation, and especially when they lay you on the table and they go all out through the iron door <laughs> and leave you just laying there with no lead apron or Zippo, you know, you're just there. So you need some skills to manage your own anxious thoughts. And um, this is one that almost any therapist is gonna start you with, is just deep breathing. But Christians, again, can go to a whole other level. What is the verse in Romans that talks about um, renew your minds? Whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is beautiful, think on these things. We can actually take in hand our own brain that's racing off with anxious thoughts and turn it to God thoughts. And the scriptures teach us how. The more we can get the scriptures into us so that we can replace some of the negative, scary, fear-filled tapes in our head with these, uh, it can calm us down from a mental place. So if we get our breathing and our mind right, that will also help with the emotions. Now, not all anxiety is gonna get fixed with this, and sometimes anxiety requires medication, just as in depression. Sometimes depression requires medication. Some of the uh, natural ways that we deal with depression, in fact, one of the most effective is walking for 30 minutes a day in sunlight. There was a psychological study done in, in San Francisco years and years and years ago. They took three groups. It was one of those blind studies, so nobody knew what the other groups were doing. One group got antidepressants. One group got group therapy once a week. And one group walked together for 30 minutes in the sun every day and talked and, you know, whatever. They, they didn't have to talk. They could talk, whatever. Who do you think got better fastest? The walkers in the sunshine. Now, here's, here's what was going on. Some of it was they were kind of taught, they were making friends. They were building a support network. So socially, they were getting some support. They were getting some exercise, which got their circulation going, and their body was feeling better. And the third thing is they were in the sunshine. Well, the sun interacts with our brain to produce the feel-good hormone, epinephrine. Um, so there were some biochemical things happening from the sunshine, and then there were, there were these wonderful social things and, um, and just physical things going on. So we start there. Remember the onion? We start with the easy fix. That doesn't do it, then we have to go to another layer. And uh, antidepressants do work. I don't want to give the impression that I don't think people should be on medication. There are definitely people that should be on medication. Um, they do work. I think success rate right now is running at about 97% effective, which is fabulous. That's a fabulous effectiveness rate. The downside to that is it usually takes, on average, six weeks to find the right prescription in the right dosage, and that's very discouraging. If you are in a place where you need medication, you go to the doctor, they give you a prescription, you do it faithfully for six weeks and it hasn't changed yet, then they may have to try another one. It also takes on average four to six changes of medication to fall upon the right dosage. 
So this is tough. So here's one shortcut that therapists make, and actually it's only psychiatrists and people with medical uh, licensing that can give a prescription. You can't go to a marriage and family therapist for antidepressants or any medication for that matter. Um, where was I going with that? Oh, there's a shortcut. Yes, thank you, Carol. Um, old friends are so helpful. They know where you're going. Uh, one shortcut is if you know that any of your family members have dealt with depression, and if so, did, were they on a certain medication that worked? Because our biology is similar to our family members because of the genetics, right? So if, for instance, my dad was on a certain antidepressant and it worked for him, that would be a really good one to try for me because of the genetic link. And then there's just different, um, each of the different drugs have different side effects and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so this definitely comes into play if there's a suicidal risk or any of those things. We don't just hear people's story. We don't just be supportive. There are things that if somebody is talking about suicide, that is an emergency. That constitutes an emergency. So think of suicide as blood. If somebody's bleeding profusely. If they've broken their bone, you're going to call 911. If they're talking suicide, you're going to call 911. Or you can take them to Cottage Hospital's emergency room and ask for a psychiatric consult. And that's available 24-7. They can get that person help. So depending on the severity. Okay, are those our five biggies? Those are our five biggies. Let me give you two resources in this area as well if you want to look at some books about this. The first one is for anxiety, I would recommend the book Adrenaline and Stress by Dr. Archibald Hart. He talks about how uh, being overstimulated with adrenaline actually makes cortisol pour through our bodies and we can actually get addicted to that. I had a couple in counseling doing their thing, fighting, of course, because that's what couples in counseling do. And the wife actually said, by the way, all these examples I'm giving you are not people from our church, so you don't have to sit here and try to identify anybody. Um, she was from the community. And she actually said, I never feel so alive as when I'm angry. Is that an adrenaline addiction or what? That was the clearest I'd ever, nobody had ever said, well, that's not true. My sons, when they would be in the back seat and I'd tell them to quit fighting and one of them chirped up, but mom, we like to fight. Okay, that's also an honest admission that we like to fight. But I never heard a real grown up say it like that. I never feel so alive as when I'm angry. Well, she definitely needed to break that addiction and get into a different way of feeling alive, right? Okay, so here's my resources. Sorry about that, I got sidetracked with that. Um, Adrenaline and Stress by Dr. Archibald Hart, who talks about that adrenaline and what it does to our bodies and our systems. The last one I wanna give you is one that talks about depression in men. Depression in men looks different than depression in women. When we think of depression, Often we think of somebody who's kind of isolated, maybe teary, sad a lot, maybe just um, 
you know, draws their curtains, doesn't come out. Men, not so much. They may not be teary at all and not expressing much sadness, but what they may be doing is just being very irritable and grumpy. You ever see the movie Grumpy Old Men? <laughs> That's kind of what you keep in mind. But the resource for that is a book by Dr. Terrence Real, R-E-A-L, and he's real. He says it like it is. His title is I Don't Want to Talk About It. So the book I Don't Want to Talk About It by Dr. Terrence Real talks about men and depression. Just in a schoolroom, often teachers will notice, you know, maybe Susie and Johnny's parents are going through divorce and Susie is not playing at recess and kind of staying to herself and kind of weepy and withdrawn. She gets referred to the school counselor because she's acting depressed, right? Well, Johnny, her brother, is out on the playground getting in school fights every day, and where does he get referred? The principal, <laughs> and probably gets suspended. Okay, he, they're both probably depressed. They just express it in really different ways, so we want to take those differences into account. Okay, my time is almost up. I got five minutes. Any questions? Well, yes. I've heard people saying, how, how long are you listening? When is it appropriate to say, I think you may need counseling? Yeah, I think, it is. I think you really pray about it and ask the Holy Spirit to give you that sense because if they have gone over it and over it and over it with you and don't seem to be making any movement forward, yeah, I think that's the loving thing to do is say, you know, I love you and you can tell me this, tell me about this as much as you want to heal. I. I don't know what more to do, so it might be good to see a counselor. Yeah. Yeah, Philip. Dr. Archibald Hart, H-A-R-T, is the adrenaline and stress guy. Yeah. He was a professor at Fuller, and um, so he's definitely coming from a Christian perspective. Any other questions or comments? Sure. Yes. Oh, Philip, what? Yeah. Part is this B. Good for kids too? He doesn't really address it for kids, but if you read through it, you may find ways then that you can communicate it to kids. Yeah, we didn't even touch on kids in the media I just had a client stuff. I just going through her daughter. Mm -hmm. so, um, I anxiety. A lot of kids dealing with anxiety, um, for sure. And, mm -hmm. um, it may be that um, her school, the daughter's school, may have a school counselor that could help her with that as well. That'd be a good referral. Yeah. Can everybody call you to get counselor names? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So, although we no longer have a Christian Counseling Center open here on campus that takes clients right here. What we have done instead for the past three years is we've offered a referral network. So people who call or email the counseling at fmcsb.org, and I should put that up here on the board, I will. Um, I'm the one who responds to those. So I get, uh, oh, at least a family every week, often more, uh, calling or writing in saying, um, I'm dealing with this or my daughter's dealing with that or whatever who could I go see and I try to give at least three or four choices because different therapists take different insurances and sometimes they don't have room in their practice or whatever so give um, 
a few referrals for whatever the situation is and based on what the people's specialties are. And so if you've ever gone to a counselor in town, especially a Christian counselor in town, who is good or bad, I would like to hear it. Because if they're bad, I don't want to refer people there. But if they're really good, I'd love to have more referrals to add to my list. Yes? Uh, back to the antidepressants. What's yes. Your, what are your thoughts on the philosophy of um, giving a low-dose antidepressant or kind of causal symptoms? What a good question. Um, interesting. I, I don't know anybody who's been prescribed that, but I'm not surprised that that might be in a repertoire, um, and it might be really helpful. I know that Zoloft is one that has few side effects for elderly people, and so they were kind of, you know, going that direction for a while, but they may have some new ones um, that are even better. So I kind of hate to get into um, recommending certain drugs, but... That could be helpful. One thing I'm sure of, menopause, I believe, and if I was going to go back to school and get a PhD, I, my research topic would be uh, menopausal onset of ADD. Because I think attention deficit disorder, you know, it's like, oh my goodness, so many menopausal women who came into my office would complain about how start doing one thing and then I forget what I'm doing I want to, you know, it just kind of classic ADD symptoms, but I haven't put it with depression yet. That's an interesting question. Thanks for that, Christina. Yeah, I, I, it could be helpful. It could be helpful. Certainly sleep disturbances are like the number one complaint for menopause. Yeah. Sleep for sure, but the attention thing is another one. I have a, a question on, um, actually it was something which was mentioned on the, at the missions conference as well, as far as like when you do go for counselling, um, and I, I didn't really kind of completely understand, um, but some people who have gone through an enormous amount of abuse when they were young, um, rehashing what they went through is, becomes actually almost uh, a, a, a like another negative is so painful mm -hmm. to recall uh, sort of what they've got and that's why that a lot of people avoid counseling yeah people do avoid counseling because they don't want to relive really painful memories from their past and yet that's how we heal is if we can go through it and survive then that's what gives us the strength to go they, on they almost said that by rehashing it kind of made it, it kind mm -hmm. of added, right. added to the issue Versus, right. um, I guess the, the only other thing you can do is bury it in the back of your mind. And, but it and what's springs out in physical ways yeah. or some other. I mean, you can't bury a bomb and not have it explode somewhere. So, yeah, it's, and the best way through it is right through it. If you have a skilled person to walk you through it. Here's the other issue, though. Um, often, if you don't go through and get these things healed, like abuse from the past, then when your child turns three when you were abused, it triggers those memories or it triggers some reactions or, God forbid, you might become a perpetrator of um, a child that was, that's now your age that was, so there's a lot, see, the, see how bombs can have really unintended, yeah, unintended results. So much better to go with the healing, even though it isn't a fun thing.
Nobody goes to therapy for fun. But you're talking about, you said going to a skilled therapist. The therapist, unless you do that, it's not a skilled therapist. Right, right, right. Just to rehash and, and get into the, yeah. But you do need to put words to it. Often abuse that happens to children is before they're verbally able to express it, and so they can't, they can't put a closure to it. So it's connecting the brain with the emotions, and yeah. Allison, did you have one last question? Then we'll be done. Well, why don't we take a question? Because this was just. No, that's okay. Go for it. I was watching a mini series, and I forget the name of it, but it's about a man who I can't remember. He was in jail for 20 years instead of 10 was a lot of time and he was let go and because DNA came out and he didn't do what people thought he did mm -hmm. and while he was in jail he suffered horrible things mm -hmm. and so he finally said I need counseling for this and I was surprised but just as you said the counselor said so they had him talk about it in counseling he had his phone on record and he would go home and re-listen to himself telling his story to desensitize himself to his own story Okay, I wouldn't do that part. Okay, Talking about it, I would do. I wouldn't oh. take it home without a skilled counselor to deal, help you deal with what comes up at home. Okay. That, that, yeah. That's dangerous. Me, but I, I thought maybe it was that's dangerous, okay. yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Was there one last over here? Yeah. I, I would only add that pastors will do healing prayer, mm -hmm. uh, which is powerful in healing trauma. And... Uh, uh, a therapist doesn't necessarily use that, but, but pastors do, that we do that all the time. Some do. Some do. A handful do. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you can always email me another question if you think of it, counseling at fmcsb.org, um, and I'll be happy to respond to you. And if you are feeling like you have a gift, or a uh, interest in pursuing counseling as maybe a ministry or training in your future, talk to me about taking our class that's coming up in March. We're doing the Healthy Church Leaders class that goes into a lot of these counseling topics in depth. And um, it's like intro to Christian counseling. So yeah, talk to me about that. Yes, Philip. So the, the technique you just showed us um, to relax you know, the fixing Oh yeah, for sure. Teach your kid that. It's just deep breathing. It's not going to hurt them. Yeah. Yeah. The people who uh, teach their kids to go hit their pillow when they're mad, I don't think that's great because since anger is the adrenaline and it becomes addictive and what do addictions do? They only increase. They don't decrease. So... If you're pounding your pillow and you're really reinforcing that anger, it's just going to get more so, right? That's not going to make it go away. So I try to help them come up with some better. I try to help them identify with the child what the feeling is that made them feel angry and express that. So, yeah. Okay, that was a freebie at the end. Sorry, one more minute. Oh, I was just going to say, could you end by uh, doing a blessing over Absolutely. I would be happy to. And do you mind if I pray instead? Sure. All right. Lord Jesus, thank you for each person in this room. Father, we are each coming from very unique places with unique upbringings and past experiences. And we pray for your complete healing. 
we pray that your Holy Spirit will work in each of our lives to heal the broken places and help us to bring healing into this world so that we can truly be ambassadors of reconciliation as you intended. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.